0: Uh, The scripture readings for today are going to be out of the from the prophet uh, Micah from chapter six and seven It's a good reminder as we think about what Jesus did of uh, what what is asked of us from God. So uh, Here we go chapters chapters Micah chapter six verse one and two Hear what the what the Lord says Arise, arise. plead your case before the mountains and let the uh, hills hear your voice Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Chapters 6, 6 through 15. What w- with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calf a year old? A year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams and t- with ten thousand rivers of oil? "'What shall I, or shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? "'He has told you, O oh man, what is good. "'And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your, with your God? "'The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is, the, it is sound wisdom to fear your name. "'Hear of the rod and of him anoint, who anointed it.' Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accused? Shall I acquit the man with wicked, wicked scales with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourself with oil. And you shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. Chapter 7, 1 through 3. Woe is me, for I have become as... When the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, but there is no cluster to eat, no first-right fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with net. Their hands are on what is evil, it, to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together." Chapter 7 or chapter 7 verses 7 through 9. But as for me, I look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of, for my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O enemy, for when I fall, I shall rise. And when I sit in darkness, the Lord will be the light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he bleed, pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out of the light and I shall or bring, bring me out to the light and I shall look upon his vindication. And then verses 18 18, 18 through 20. Who is a God like you, pardoning pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins to the depths of the seas. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of the old. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Thank you, Jacob.
1: Uh, good morning, family and friends. My name is John. I serve as one of the pastors here for our church family. He is risen. Yeah, amen. All right. There you go. Good work. This week, we're going to wrap our series in the Old Testament book of Micah. Uh, we've only It's a short book, and we've only been in it for two weeks. So this is our third week. So if you're visiting with us today, uh, no worries. Uh, maybe, maybe if you're new to church and you've never heard of Micah before, that he's got a short book in the, in the Bible, no worries. That's okay. Let me just kind of give you, uh, in a nutshell, uh, what you need to know uh, for where we're at this morning. Our, our, th- our series theme has been this, Micah. Our story, systemic rebellion, surprising hope. So Micah was written to God's people six, 700 years before the time of Jesus. And so it, the book tells their story, but what we see as we explore it is it tells our story too. And it's a story of systemic rebellion, but surprising hope what you need to know about Micah is this. Micah was a prophet, which simply means that um, he was sent by God to speak on behalf of God to God's people. That's what a prophet was and what a prophet did. So Micah came, was sent by God to God's people to speak on his behalf, and Micah's job was to address the systemic rebellion of God's people. Right? Their, their society, they're, they were just broken. I mean, they had systemic injustices everywhere. And so, what we've been learning from Micah is it's one thing to talk about the systemic injustices in our culture, and we should, but we've got to understand that those injustices have a root. And Micah's point is systemic injustice exists in our homes because, first, systemic injustice, which flows from systemic rebellion, exists in every one of our hearts. That's Micah's point. So Micah makes that point in what we call three cycles of doom, three cycles of doom. Happy Easter, right? So we're going to hit the third cycle of doom this week. Now, uh, I'm a simple man and I need tools to help me to remember pretty much everything in life, people's names, important dates, very important dates, um, and themes of books of the Bible. I, I mean, I can read a book this month. And next month, pick it back up again and, and read it. And be like, wow, this was a fantastic book. Where's it been all my life, right? Like, I'm that kind of a guy. So music really helps me remember themes. And as I was studying the third cycle of doom this week, this song came to mind. And in seven seconds of music, the theme of Micah is captured perfectly. And it goes like this. Here comes the blues. Here comes the blues. Don't really like, yeah. That's it. You can remember Micah for the rest of your life now. Three cycles. So from here on out, it's not cycles of doom. We're going to substitute, okay? I mean, yeah, it's three cycles of boom. All right, we got it. We're tracking. We're on the same page. You can thank Nelly for that. He didn't know when he wrote that song that he was perfectly summarizing Micah for us. Now, each cycle of boom is followed by words of hope, right? Um, and that's the gospel pattern. Hope always has the final word. So if Micah uh, was around today and was able to collaborate with Nelly on these lyrics, he'd probably round them out a little bit and, and, and still sing to us, hey, you, you, you all really don't want it now. But you really do need it now. And guys, that's what we see in Micah. Micah brings the hard-hitting truth. We need that truth. Like We've got to hear the truth. We've got to hear the bad news for the good news to be really good to us. And so Micah's that good friend who tells us the truth the way that it is, but he does so with empathy. And then after each cycle of boom, he brings the hope that we find in the gospel and so here's the theme for this morning. I think after spending time in chapters six and seven, the final two chapters of Micah, I think the sentence captures well what those two chapters teach. And so it's going to be the main point of our talk this morning. And here it is. Our rebellion ushers in devastating darkness, but the resurrecting shepherd king... Kills our darkness with the light of his life. So, again, I'm a simple guy, so here's how we're gonna tackle that this morning. We're just gonna break that sentence into two, and we'll take the first half of the sentence, we'll wrap it, and then we'll hit the second half of the sentence as we close it out. So, let's begin with our rebellion ushering in devastating darkness. Micah chapter 6 opens, if you can imagine a scene, it's a courtroom, somebody's on trial and somebody's bringing an indictment. And as we read, we learn that it's God versus people, God's word against the word of people. And God calls all of creation to witness, not just people, but mountains and valley. He calls all of the created world to witness this trial And as we continue reading in verses 1 and 2, we hear God say to his people, you need to listen to me now. And we've heard that theme all through Micah, haven't we? Like, hey, these words matter to you. You need to hear what I have to say. Listen. And then God says, I'm going to give you the opportunity to plead your case, which we do. We plead our case to God all the time. And so that's what he says. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, bring my case to you. You'll have the opportunity to plead your case. And here's what God says. I've got an indictment against you. Uh, Actually, what he says is I've got an indictment against my people. So we need to hear this guys. God in Micah is bringing an indictment against his The unfortunate realities of kind of growing up in certain Christian circles in the West is we will very quickly weaponize this book against people who are outside of the family. But we got to understand that most of what's written in here is our father addressing issues that are present in the life of his family. So this talk is not directed to people outside the family. This is a family talk. And so what that means for us is anyone here this morning who considers themselves a Christian, for whatever reason, you consider yourself to be a Christian. This talk is for you. Maybe you consider yourself to be a Christian based on where you were born. I grew up in a Christian county or country or state or region or whatever some of you may just, you feel like you have family, you have Christian family roots. Your name is written in a massive 25 pound King James Bible that's sitting on, you know, grandma's coffee table or something like that. Your name's there. You rode the church bus as a kid. Your mama had you baptized before you could recite the ABCs, or maybe you grew up Southern Baptist, which great, like I won't hold that against you either. Uh, maybe you kind of consider yourself Christian based on the way you pull the lever in the voting booth or maybe for some of you, you're like, no, I've got some deeply rooted beliefs and based on those beliefs, I believe that I'm in God's family. Great. So I'm talking to all of you then. If you fall into any of those categories, if you think of yourself as a Christian as part of God's family, this talk from Micah is for you. If that's not you, if you didn't answer yes to any of those questions, man, I'm so glad that you're here. If you're not a Christian or not yet a Christian, I'm I'm really glad you're here. What you're going to get is a front row seat into a family chat, a father to his kids. But then to encourage you, uh, I want you to know the father is going to loop you in. He's going to really come hard at the family, but then he's going to loop you in on the conversation here in, in just a little bit. So you get to watch and listen, and then you'll have the opportunity to engage, even if this is not your family. Here's the father's indictment. He looks at his kids in the eyes and he says to them, Hey, where are you? Where did you go? I mean, you give me a head nod. Appreciate it. I see you. Uh, You've got the dope tat. You've got the Celtic cross in your little tribal bands. Thanks for that. Um, You give me your dog tags. It says Protestant or Catholic or non-denominational or whatever. Thanks for that. Um, you give me dinner time. The family prays to me every night at thank you. So I I see that. I see the dope tat and the dog tags and the dinner time and the church attendance, especially on holidays. I see that. But where are you really? Where are you? In verse three, he kind of changes direction with his question. And the father actually says, what have I done to wear you out? I mean, where are you? You're, you're here, but you're not really here. Like, please answer me. Tell me what I've done to drive you away from me. What have I done to wear you out relationally? I mean, you're here, but not really. You guys have asked that question before, right? Or made that statement. Like, you're here, baby, but not really. Um, maybe in a dating relationship, this is your last date. Like, you're, hey, you're here, but obviously not. Or when your marriage gets to a point, where like yo, we like we gotta talk. Like you're here physically, you're in the house, you're at the dinner table, but your heart is a long way away. You're not close right now. Would you please just answer me and tell me what I've done to wear you out? Where are you? We ask this question, and so in verses four to five, God reminds them of all that He'd done for them. He says, "Fam, I brought you up from Egypt. Like remember, you were enslaved there, and I set you free." I gave you good leaders, Moses and Aaron and Miriam, to bring you home. Hey, remember that time that Balak, like he was a bad dude. Remember Balak? Remember that time he hired a hitman to just destroy you? And remember how I flipped the script so that when the hitman spoke, he actually spoke a blessing over my people and the curse was reversed in the wrong. Like, remember that? That was crazy. Remember how I brought you home from start to finish, He references two cities there, Shittim and Gilgal. They were on opposite sides of the Jordan River. So kind of signifying like that final leg of the journey where God brought them across this river and brought them all the way home. So that's God's way of saying, man, I brought you safely from start to finish. Remember how I brought you across a flooded Jordan River? Like they crossed at the time of year where the Jordan's banks were just overrun by floodwaters. And they crossed not only safely, but with dry feet and said, don't you remember how I brought you home safe to the other side? Look, all of this stuff demonstrates that I love you. And I made you my family and I rescued you and I provided for you and I protected you. And you give me a head nod at best. You give me a thanks. I appreciate the tattoo. Thanks for the the shout out on your dog tags and at dinner time. But what have I done to drive you away? where are you family our father asks us the same question today he asks you the same question today where'd you go son hey hey girl your heart is cold towards me like we're kind of we're not even making eye contact right now you're not talking to me i talk and you don't listen to me your heart is cold it's been a while where'd you go son I mean, remember, I I love you. I made you my family. I rescued you. I provide for you all the time. Have I ever let you go without? I protect you. I give you what your soul longs for. Why are you so distant to me? Why are you so cold towards me relationally? And as people respond, maybe a bit like we've come to expect in Micah, more or less like this, hey, look, I get it, God. I got it. I get it. I'm a little bit distant, but what do you you want from me? What would actually make you happy? What do I have to do? What do I have to keep from doing to make God happy? Isn't what I'm already doing enough? I mean, look at what I'm doing. Verses 6 and 7. I give you... Religious practice. They talk about their burnt offerings, meaning they were good Christians, if you want to use that cultural phrase. They showed up to temple when the doors were open, and they participated in the group sacrifices that were made on their behalf. Good, church-going Christians, if you will. Religious practice. They talk about personal sacrifice. God, I give you personal sacrifice. Look, thousands of rams with 10,000 rivers of oil, oil being one of their greatest commodities at the time, and it was very symbolic. 10,000 rivers, meaning, God, we we give, we sacrifice, and penance, let's talk about penance. Dad, I'll, I'll hurt myself to prove to you that I love you, and I'm sorry. Look, you want my firstborn son? I'll give you my firstborn son. Is that what you want, God? Because I've done... All that. I'm religious. Look. And we could have the same conversation. Yo, it's Easter. And we have Rona restrictions. Like I should really be home live streaming this thing right now. Are we even socially distanced right now? We are, for the record. Most of you are. Good job. <laughs> but here I am. I'm here. And Dad, I've sacrificed for you. Remember that missions trip I took in high school? Remember college? Like every every off semester or in between semesters, I took that mission trip. I give. Dad, you know I give. You know I've got the magnet on the fridge. i got that little kid in Haiti that I send $17 to every month so he can eat and have his school books and his sneakers. You know I'm doing that. Penance? You want to talk about penance? I live in guilt and shame. You think I don't live with guilt and shame? You want my kids too? I mean, what do I have to do, God? Man, and I'm telling you, if there is a better description of what kind of our shared collective sense of what Christianity is in the West exists somewhere, I don't know where it is. Micah captures it perfectly. This is our cultural view of Christianity right here. Two questions. What do I have to do to make God happy? And what do I have to keep from doing so that I can keep God happy and stay in the family? And then Micah, perhaps on behalf of God or maybe God himself, asks in, in such a way, hey, like, John, are you done? You good? Like, you got that off your chest? All right. Son, listen, daughter, listen, I've, I've told you what I want before. I've been very clear about it. Micah 6, 8, he's told you, oh man, what is good. I've, to, I've told you. And what does the Lord require of you but to do? do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with our with your god. Now let's go in reverse order because this really matters. When we see the word walk in the Bible, generally it's referring to life, like everyday life, the way that we live moment by moment. So this is this is God saying I want you to live engaged with me minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day. Close relationship. You talk to me. I talk to you. I satisfy your soul. We make eye contact. We're close, right? Right? I want you. That's what Mike is saying. That's what the father is saying to his kids. That's what he's saying. I want you. I want your heart. I want your affections. Your I want warmth. I want relational vitality. I want you. He adds that word humbly. That communicates a joyful dependence. So we're not just living moment by moment with the father. We're living with him in such a way that, in humility, a humility that communicates, look, I get it. I am completely dependent on the Father for everything. There is nothing at any moment that, that, that I can find somewhere else that I, I need. I am dependent entirely on, on him. And it's not just a reluctant dependence, like I'm glad that I'm dependent upon the Father. Okay? So this walking, this living with humility, a joyful dependence, this is our Father's way of looking you in the eye son, or daughter, and saying, I want you, not what you do. And when you live in this way, humble, joyful dependence, walking humbly with our God, when you live this way, justice will flow in your life, and kindness will flow in your life. They will follow. And the kindness that Micah's is talking about here, it's the, maybe you've heard this Hebrew word before, chesed, and it means a faithful kind of love, like undying faithfulness, like the type we talk about when we exchange wedding vows, more faithful than that limitless, unqualified, and I say more faithful than that because this kind of love, our our love is conditional with each other. Like even every marriage, even though it's meant to be permanent by God's design, has a breaking point, and we see exceptions for, for marriage and divorce in the Bible, but this kind of love has no exception. None. It is an unqualified love, and so the Father is saying, When you live in joyful, humble dependence upon me, you will learn to love people in this way because this is the way I love you as your dad. You will learn to love as you were loved and you will learn also to love what I love and I love justice. And so you will love justice and you will do it. We've talked a lot about ju- well, we haven't. Micah talks a lot about justice and systemic injustice and all of that. We've, so we've hit that hard over the last couple of weeks. I just want to share one more thought with you about justice. This is from Stephen. Um. He says, "Justice is more than only punishing wrong. Justice is creating a situation and a society where everything is right." A society where every last person in it, including the most vulnerable, and I would, if can are not supposed to change other people's definitions, but I would say, especially the most vulnerable and the weakest can flourish and thrive. It's loving so deeply, so fully, and I love this word, so stubbornly that we refuse to budge until everyone, including and especially the most vulnerable of society, can flourish and thrive. He writes, that's the nature of biblical justice and it puts many modern conceptions of justice to shame. I agree, it likely puts many of us to shame too. And I agree. But family, you've got to understand, practice justice or love Kindness to be accepted by the Father. We practice justice and we love kindness because we've been justified by the Father, fully accepted, and because the Father has and because the Father has been kind towards us in Christ, fully accepted, fully affirmed, and fully loved. So now justice and loving kindness flows from the from from our hearts because and when we are walking humbly with our God. But Micah continues the indictment. He says my people don't do justice they don't love kindness they're not walking humbly with me and if we were to summarize verses 9 to 12 Micah's saying listen you have treasures you have bank accounts of wickedness do you want me to just forget about that? Like as as your father, should I turn a blind eye to the systemic injustices that exist in my family's heart and in the culture of my family? You have wicked scales and deceitful weights, meaning my own family is practicing and contributing to economic injustice. Should I just let that go?" he asks. Your excessive wealth is coupled with violence, meaning um, there is a posture of heart that is violent towards other people when it comes to acquiring wealth or comfort for ourselves. In other words, we are so driven to get for ourselves that we will get and get and get and not really care deep down how it affects other people, other people beyond us. In fact, we will even get and get knowing it hurts other people or turning a blind eye to the pain of others. And he says, look, you speak lies. You use deceit to your advantage. You're like, we don't live this way. We don't do this. And we deceive people. But I'm telling you the truth. I'm bringing the third cycle of boom to tell you this exists in your heart and it exists in the life of our family. And as a result, right, here it is. Your rebellion has ushered in devastating darkness. Verses 13 to 15. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow. I, I As your dad, I'm allowing you to experience the consequences. I'm judging this rebellion, and I'm going to make you desolate because of your sins. You're like, desolate? What, what, what does that mean? What does it mean that the Father would make us desolate? Well, for starters, look at this. He says to his people, you're going to eat but you won't be satisfied. So we can understand that physically, but we can also understand it spiritually. Like your soul will be hungry and you'll go after things or people or whatever. You'll never find satisfaction, but it won't matter. You're going to invest your life earning money so you can be comfortable between the ages of 60 to 85. But at what cost? You're going to sacrifice your family along the way, and all the comfort in the world between 60 and 80 will not matter for you. In fact, you will hate it because of what it costs you right now. It's not going to matter. You're going to work, but your work's going to be frustrated. For example, you're going to tread olives, but you won't enjoy the benefit of all your work. You're not going to be able to anoint yourself with oil. You won't be well. You won't be healthy physically or in your soul. You're going to tread grapes, but you won't drink any of the wine that you produce. Why? Verse 16, because you kept the statues of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their councils. You're like, Omri and Ahab, man, I haven't been around for the last three weeks. I don't even, I have been around for the last two weeks. I don't even know who those jokers are. Well... In summary, those two cats were the worst kings ever in a long line of really bad kings in God's family. Ahab was legendary for financial injustice and swindling people. Like as a king, take advantage, taking advantage of his own people for his personal gain. And look at how the writers of Kings describe these two guys. First Kings chapter 16 says that Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, look at this, and did more evil than all who were before him. So stack up all the evil of all the bad kings and Omri's stack alone is higher than theirs. Provoking the Lord, the God of Israel to anger by their idols. But did you see the indictment right there? He's saying we are like Omri and Ahab. We're like them. Well, how are we like them? Maybe you're not swindling people, maybe not economic injustice, but we are like them in that we have idols too. You may not have an idol made out of stone. You may not have an idol carved out of wood. So what are we talking about? Well, uh, Tim Keller explains an idol this way. He says an idol is anything more important to you than God is. An idol is anything that absorbs your heart more than God does. An idol is anything that absorbs your imagination more than God does. It is anything that you seek to give you what can only be given to you by God. So guys, this cycle of boom, Micah would say, you are like Omri and Ahab. It's not, the question is not, do you have idols? The question is, what idols do you have? I have idols. There are things in my life that on any given day, clearly are more important to me than God is based on my, the way I feel, the base, based on the way I invest my time, based on the way I respond to people. There are things in my life that regularly absorb my heart and my imagination more than God. There are things in my life that I regularly pursue looking for joy, for peace, for identity, for satisfaction, more than I pursue God, the God who created me. I have idols and guys Mike is looking at you in the eyes and he's saying to you this morning you also have idols. And here's the insanity of our rebellion. When we pursue idols, we never find satisfaction. We never find rest. We will never find real peace. All we are left with is emptiness and longing. The darkness remains and you know what we do in all of that lingering unrest? We make a new idol. We carve a new idol. We pursue something or someone else rather than the God who created us. So this morning, Micah gives you an option. You can respond in denial or you can agree with him. Micah shows us here what it looks like to agree. And agreeing with Micah that we have ushered in in incredible darkness through our systemic rebellion, that we are rebels like Omri and Ahab, that we have all kinds of God substitutes, some that we're not even aware of. Micah shows us what it looks like to agree. Chapter 7, verse 1, agreeing begins with lament. Two big ideas here. When you agree with Micah, you lament. And you look. So here's the lamenting. Verse 1, you see the words, whoa, woe is me. We don't use that word in our vocabulary anymore, but it is, it is, Woe is the, is a word communicating an incredible sense of weight that I am not old. Stephen Um defines lament this way. He says, a lament is not despair. The lament is a cry directed to God. It is the cry of those who see the truth of the world's deep ruptures and wounds and the cost of seeking peace. But let's not allow that definition to remain impersonal. Let's tweak it to make it our own. Lament is the cry of those who see the truth of their own deep ruptures, your deep ruptures and mine. That I see the depth of my wounds and I see the cost of making peace. And guys, just again, to be clear, the gospel is so clear. It tells me the truth that while I am a wounded person because I have been wounded by the rebellion of other people, my heart has deep, deep, deep wounds, deep wounds. Another thing can be true at the same time of a wounded person. And this is important to hear, that in my own rebellion, and even though my woundings are legitimate, and even though God speaks directly and brings healing to them, I am also a wounding one. I have acted in rebellion in a way that has damaged the lives and the hearts of other people. And so lamenting is what we do when the weight of that brokenness rests on us like it should And look at how Micah describes it, continuing in verse 1 of chapter 7. I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, nothing to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires in other words Micah's pointing to a harvest time and we approach harvest with anticipation just like you do Thanksgiving dinner so maybe you skip a meal but you make sure you show up to the table hungry so you can put away your weight in good harvest time food or is that just me all right good So Mike is saying, in your rebellion, you go hungry and you show up to this anticipated meal. And when you walk through the door of your grandma's house and all the smells greet you, you turn the corner and sit at the table and realize every smell was a lie. And there's nothing on the table to eat. And your soul is hollow And empty and aching. This is where we find ourselves with God's substitutes, harvest time with an aching stomach and nothing to eat with which to satisfy our soul. And he he kind of summarizes what that looks like in verses two to six. And if we had to summarize this paragraph, we could summarize it this way Micah is saying, I am a mess and we are a mess. Look at what he says. Our rebellion has ushered in devastating darkness, so much so that it feels like godly people have perished from the earth, meaning I look around, and I'm just looking for one person not affected by systemic rebellion, and I don't see any. I see a bunch of wounded people, and I see a bunch of wounding people. It's like everybody else is dead and gone, no one is perfectly just or kind. We all have these roots of selfishness in our hearts that drive us to be out for ourselves. And even, it's how crazy it is. We're like, I know I shouldn't be out for myself. I know I exist for God's fame and for the good of other people. Got it. Then why every morning do I wake up? Do I have to do this little rehearsal in my heart? Because my heart's like, yo, John, go get it. Like, you're out for yourself today. Like, why is that still so deeply ingrained in our hearts? We're a mess. And then you'll like this one. Micah says, all of our elected officials are dirty. So I don't care who you vote for. The whole thing is just broken and corrupt. They're all dirty. I see the hand, mo- yeah, all dirty, all of them. You can't trust your neighbors. You don't know who's gonna put you on blast on Facebook rant. Try to do a little party in your backyard, right? Try to take your mask off somewhere. Like somebody's gonna have their cell phone ready. Take a little picture and you're gonna, fu- you can't trust your neighbor's been burned by friends. Micah's like, I even have to be careful with what I say to the person I hold closest. Relationships between fathers and sons are messed up. Same with moms and daughters. There's junk there. And then Micah just kind of states the obvious. I'm not sure why he felt the need to say this because we all, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He forgot the son-in-law against, right? That should be in there too. Stating the obvious. And then he says this, This guys, look, a man's enemies are the people in his house. You know what he's saying right there? That's his way of saying, guys, what happened to us? The relationships that should mean the most, the greatest intimacy, the greatest wholeness, are the very people we fight with the hardest. That's where our worst conflict is found. The people in our home, in a sense, are like our greatest enemies. So take heart, if you have family drama at home, you're not alone. And Micah just described a condition that's common to all of us because of our systemic rebellion. But he's saying, what happened to us? We're a mess. Guys, you're a mess. You're a mess. And the lament is the cry of those who see the truth of their mess, their deep ruptures and their wounds. And guys, that is Micah's third cycle of boom. You just lived through it, okay? You made it. Like, there it is. It's hard truth, but it's we've got to hear it. And now Mike is going to bring a word of hope. It begins right here in verse 7, the good news of the gospel. That Lament is good and right, but Lament is only the beginning. Look at verse 7. He says, "But as for me, I will look to the Lord." So I'm going to lament. I know I need to, but then I'm going to look to God and I'm going to wait for him because he is the God of my salvation. And here's his hope right here. Here it is. My God will what? Hear me. He will hear me. Now you've seen this picture circulating the internet over the last couple of weeks. Here's the ever given, right? That's where your Amazon package is at. Some of your household goods were on the ship, I heard they had to dump some cargo to lighten the load so they could get it through the canal, and they prioritized like military. They're just like, this this stuff's gone. They don't really need it anyway. So just cancel your prime orders right now. They will never be given. So the ever given was stuck in the Suez Canal. Guys, Micah's third cycle of boom just looks you in the eye and says, Dog, you are the ever given. You and I are the ever given. We're stuck. Our systemic rebellion has ushered in this darkness that brings us to the point where we have no other option but to look and to wait and to hope that somebody will act on our behalf for our good. Family, this is what God wants from you, just this. So if you're one of God's kids, rebel son, rebel daughter, and you know you've been adopted in, you know what God wants from you this morning? He wants you. He wants your heart. And the way that that looks is lament, looking, and waiting, believing that he will act for your good. And if you're not yet a part of our family, here's where, here's where our father loops you back in. You know what he wants from you? He wants you to lament as you feel the weight of your brokenness and your rebellion. He wants you to look to God for the first time. You may have never spoken Jesus' name before, but that you would cry out to him, you would look to him, and that you would wait, believing that this God that you don't even know yet intends to rescue you and give you life. And I want to encourage you with this. When you see that word hear in the Bible, you know what that means? You know what it means when God says he's going to hear you? It doesn't just mean he opens his ear and hears the words that you say. It means, it's God saying, I will act for your good. I promise you. I will hear what you say, but that's not all I'm going to do. I'm going to hear and I'm going to act on what you say for your good, I promise. And so then we're left with this question. How will he respond if I place my hope in him? What will he do? Verses eight and nine, I love this. Check this out. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I've sinned against him. My systemic rebellion, I deserve it until until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. And I will look upon his vindication. Guys, he says right there, look, again, here's the truth. You will bear the indignation of the Lord because of the darkness of your rebellion. It's right that God's justice is aligned against you. God would not be just if he did not hold us to account for our rebellion. But are we under his justice, his judgment forever? That's the question here. Is it forever? Is there any hope that I can get out from underneath the judgment for the rebellion that I've lived in? Well, look at what Micah says. Under the indignation or bear the indignation of the Lord, what? Key word in this verse, until, until. Until God does something about it. Not until I do something about it. Until he pleads my cause and until he executes judgment for me. So Micah as a prophet is looking forward and just like a quick Um, word about prophets. God would give them a vision of something future, but like big picture vision, not all the details. So Micah's envisioning a time for future where God's going to do these things for our good. We, because we have the rest of God's voice here, can look back to the work that's been done on our behalf. So Micah was looking forward. We look back and we have all the detail to fill it in. We'll get to that in a minute, but it's like your PCS in the spring, right? And so you're describing to your kids, hey, We're going back to the States. And so you paint this big picture for them, but do you sit down and walk them through the itinerary and the ROMs, like all the nitty gritty details? No, some point future, they will have lived it and they can look back and see it. But initially you're just like, hey, we're going back to the States. We'll get Chick-fil-A. We'll see grandma, right? That's what you say. Since we're in a cycle of boom, let me just say, Chick-fil-A is overrated. So you should leave that out of your... uh You can take the Chick-fil-A, right? All right, we'll let it go. Um, But that's what we do. So that's what Mike is doing. He's looking forward, big picture, but not all the details. We look back, and guys, here's what we see through the gospel. We see clearly that Jesus pleads my cause we see clearly that the Father executed judgment against Jesus on my behalf. That's, these are the reasons that Jesus went to the cross. Jesus went to the cross to be in my place, to plead on my behalf. I'm guilty. He's innocent. He takes my guilt, and his name is stained. I take his innocence, and he pleads on my behalf. Jesus goes to the cross because the Father had to execute judgment, or the Father's not just. And if he's not just, forget about him. He's not a good God. And so Jesus absorbs that justice on the cross. And so now I don't bear the indignation any longer because Jesus took my sin. And so we can do what Micah said, and we can look to his vindication, meaning I don't clear my name. Christianity is not a way for you to clear your name. Christianity is the truth that Jesus cleared your name for you in your place in a way you could never do it. And then it says, he brings us into the light. The father gives us the spirit. The son gives us the spirit and the spirit brings us into the light. So verse eight is beautifully true now. Look at these lines. When I fall, I will rise. When I fall, I will rise. Why can we say that? We can say that because our rescuing shepherd king took our fall on the cross. He went to the darkness of the grave in my place he defeated death he rose to life in my place he is our resurrecting king not just our dying rescuing king but the resurrecting king i had fallen in my rebellion with no chance to rise until jesus fell in my place and raised me up and now as kids in his family we can just with humility and honesty say you know what I may fall a thousand more times. Actually, no, not may. I will fall a thousand more times in this lifetime. But Jesus will raise me up again every single time. I will fall in death. I'm going to die someday. But when I fall in death, he will raise me up. And in this life, when I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will never be in darkness alone again as my father's kid. And so that leads Micah to point confidently to this total restoration because of our resurrecting shepherd king. To summarize verses 10 to 13, Micah says, look, those who mock you and ask you, where is your God? You say, you're a, you, say you have a God? I don't see a God. I don't see a rescuing shepherd king. He says he's going to restore you and make you whole. Where? What, what restoration? Micah says, they will be silenced. But guys, let's not weaponize this. Let's personalize it. You know who your greatest enemy is? It's not out there. You know who your greatest enemy is? It's your own mocking heart. Your heart every day asks you, what God? Where's your God? You really believe what your parents taught you? They were just, they were just manipulating you as a young child whose brain was not fully formed. You really believe that? Look at Christians in our culture just falling all the way. Like, Christianity is a mess. You're a Christian? Where's your God? He promised you healing. Why are you still so wounded? He promised you restoration. Where is it? There's a day where your own rebel heart will be silenced, and it's going to be the sweetest silence you've never heard in your entire life. It's going to be silenced. He points to a season of building walls and extending boundaries. He's just describing restoration, uh, being made whole. But remember last week we talked about the already, not yet. Jesus started this restoration when he came. He started making us whole when he came and died in our place and rose again. And it's a work that he is doing through all of time that will only be completed when he returns. So we're in the messy already, not yet. But people will see this restoration. They will see us being made whole. And Micah says, many people outside my family will come to you and they will want in because they will, of what they will see. They will see the life. And friend, I just want to say, if you're not yet a Christian, maybe that's you this morning. You have seen a glimpse of God's restoring work. Your heart longs for restoration and it longs for peace. It longs to be made whole. You know what? You are longing for a person. You are longing for this rescuing, resurrecting shepherd king. Your heart longs for Jesus. And here's Micah's prayer. I love this prayer. Verse 14. Micah prays to God. Father, shepherd your people with your staff. The the flock of your inheritance, just a, a name for his people. Now notice this. Who currently, look at where they live. They live where? Or how? Alone. Where? In a Forest in the midst of a garden land. Now imagine this, maybe forests aren't scare, scary to you, but you ever read your kids the book, um, what's the bear hunt book? I'm going on a bear hunt. Okay, the deep, dark forest, like the dark forest, the, the, the bad place where no life is found, this kind of a forest. Now look at this forest exists in the middle of a garden land. So it's surrounded by life. Is death surrounded by life? And in this forest there is nothing to eat. Predators exist here. It's a place of death. And Mike is saying, if you're distant from God, this is where you live. This is your home. You live in this forest. Now, some of us in here are so broken and so wounded. You're like, yeah, you don't really have to tell me that. I know. Like, you just described my zip code right there. I know I live there, and I'm exhausted by it. Some of us, though, are so culturally conditioned that we're oblivious to it. We have come to believe that forest living is the new normal. Like, it's just meant to be broken this way. It's just meant to hurt. It's, I'm, I'm meant to have this wounding. My soul is meant to not be able to find satisfaction. And so it's the new normal for us we're like i'm fine but let me ask you this question are you like are you really are you and micah prays he said god take your kids who live alone in this dark forest and let them graze in basham and gilead as in the days of old basham and gilead were just the best places to take your pa- your flocks it's where they could eat the best they were the best grazing lands And so Micah is asking, Father, take your rebel kids from this forest that is starving them and killing them and take them to where their souls will be satisfied. And look at how our father answers. Is he a reluctant God? No. Let them suffer in the forest a little longer for their rebellion. Verse 15. Micah. Just like in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. Meaning the father will send rescue marching confidently into the forest where you live in your rebellion. And one at a time, I will rescue my rebel sons and daughters and bring them out of the forest into this place where they can find rest and satisfaction. Are you starving in the wilderness? Jesus will satisfy you in the garden. And Jesus accomplished this work on the cross. And just think of the irony of this. The thorns were beat into Jesus' head, were ripped from this forest floor. The cross upon which Jesus died was constructed from the timbers of trees, chopped down out of a forest. The crown of thorns that went to Jesus' head were your thorns. The tree that Jesus hung on as he died was in your forest. It was your tree. You should have died on that tree. Jesus, confidently and calmly and with purpose, walked alone into the forest of your rebellion and died on the tree that bore your destiny. He was dead for three days. He was resurrected, defeating death, defeating your forest, your rebellion. And now he lives to rescue rebels one at a time from the forest to a feast in the Father's presence. And if you have lamented, if you have looked to God for your rescue, and if you have waited for him, you have been brought from the forest to the feast. If you... Man, if you're sitting here and look, like, I'm man, I'm still in the forest, and I honestly would like to not live there for one more day. What do I have to do? You need to look to the Father. You need to lament your rebellion. You need to cry out for rescue and wait, because he will hear you, and he will do things for your good like you've never seen done before, and you will for the first time begin to experience restoration and life. And then you're given a song. Look at this song, verses 18 to 19. this, This will be your song. How do you know if you're rescued? This is your song right here. If you've come from the forest to the feast, this is your song. Who is like a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance for his people. He does not retain his anger forever. Why? Because God delights in steadfast love. He loves it. And he will again have compassion on us. Guys, if you're broken, that's what you need. You need compassion. And that's what the father brings to the forest as he carries you to the feast. Compassion. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Guys, think of it like your rescuing king is pressing into your forest and with every step he takes, he treads underfoot another of your rebellious acts. He destroys them as he walks in and he casts all your sins into the depths of the sea. Good, because that's what I need for the innumerable rebellious acts and thoughts and desires that I have lived in my, I need the deepest part of the sea that you can find with the greatest capacity and I need Jesus to deposit all of my rebellion there. And I know you have a heart like mine and you need a sea equally big that will swallow yours as well. And that's what the father promises. Good, because that's what we need, isn't it? And why will the father do for, this for us? Because I earn it because I prove it, because I'm so just, because I love so much kindness, deserve it. My name's in the family Bible. I rode the church bus. Nah, none of those things. Verse 20, final verse. You will show faithfulness to Jacob, a nickname for his people, and steadfast love to Abraham, another nickname for his people, as you have sworn to our fathers. Why will the father send a rescuing, resurrecting shepherd king for you in the forest? because he promised he would. He swore it. And when the father swears it, it happens. Because our dad promised he would, and he always keeps his promise, he's coming for you. You can't outrun the father's kindness in your forest. Stop running. Turn around. Turn around and listen, and you will hear the footsteps of the rescuing shepherd king coming up on you. Look, and you will see him now. You will see the father running towards you through this rescuing shepherd king and is not an angry father. He is a compassionate father with tears of joy in his heart that he's bringing one of his kids home because your rebellion has ushered in devastating darkness, but your resurrecting shepherd king kills your darkness with the light of his life. You want out of the forest, don't you? If you come to the feast in the father's presence, it's the resurrecting king Jesus who will bring you there and will kill your rebellion with the light of his life the team's going to come now we're going to sing a song that reminds us that Jesus put death in his in its grave and we're going to read a line that says in desperate places Jesus paid our wages guys the desperate place was the forest of your rebellion and so what does what does Jesus want from you now what does Jesus want for you this easter morning he wants you he wants your heart and when he has your heart justice and kindness will flow. He just wants you to look to him, son, daughter, look to him and wait. Our father will hear you and he will act for your good. Let's sing of the beauty of that gospel.